Welcome to In Parallel, an offshoot of the OnScript podcast, in which we explore the connections between biblical and contemporary poetry. I'm your host, Brent Strawn. I'm a biblical scholar and theologian. I teach at Duke University, where I'm professor of Old Testament and professor of law. Among other things, as I admitted on an earlier episode, I am also a poetaster. That's someone who loves poetry, but who sadly falls shy themselves of being able to write it at the highest levels. Uh, put differently, uh, that is to say, I have no intentions of sharing any of my own poetry on this podcast anytime soon. Happily, there is plenty of poetry, very good poetry, to occupy us, both inside the Bible and outside of it in the great wide world, and so we needn't bother with lesser lights like yours truly. Now, poetry, excellent or otherwise, is in many ways, and in historical ways, an oral medium. Poetry, as we now tend to think of it, or typically encounter it, comes in written form. In a magazine, for example, or a book of poetry, or in one of our own personal journals full of our own poetasterly compositions. But we don't have to think very hard or very long before we recall things like poetry readings, the spoken word movement, and especially the poetry in rap and hip-hop, with the latter one of the most vibrant places for poetry in contemporary culture. Of course, popular song lyrics more generally, regardless of genre, might also be considered further proof of poetry's orality, though one has to admit that much pop music doesn't always achieve the highest levels of poetic technique. You know, I love you, I do, it's true, ooh, 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 ooh. That lyric seems a bit poetasterly, if you ask me. It certainly isn't as artful as the densest, most complex examples of hip-hop. Whatever the case, musical instantiations of poetry are not another beast altogether, but are instead reflective of poetry's ancient origins. The English word used for sung words set to music, lyrics, derives, after all, from the Greek lyre, a type of stringed instrument which was often used as accompaniment to, yes, you guessed it, oral poetry. Nowadays, outside of song lyrics, contemporary poetry reflects and retains its musicality, its, its lyricism, primarily by means of its elevated use of language. As the saying goes, poetry can be defined as words that mean more and also that sound better. Well, please forgive the mini-history lesson, but it is instructive on two points, I think. First, the oral, even musical nature of so much poetry, at, at least way back when, means that much depends on its performance, something that, sadly, isn't stressed as much these days. Yes, of course, there are poetry readings, some of them even replete, at least occasionally, with super cool snapping. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's good. But 
If you've ever attended a poetry reading, you may have been disappointed to hear your favorite poet read your favorite poem in what can only be described as a rather odd, stilted, and ethereal voice with awkward and strange pauses. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. Yeah, sadly, poets aren't always the best performers of their own poetry. Thank goodness for the spoken word movement to set some things straight. In any event, that's the first point that is instructive about this history lesson on poetry and orality. It's this, good performance of poetry depends on, well, good performance. The second instructive point is that a musical setting for at least some poetry might prove helpful with what is a deeply vexed issue, namely, determining a poem's tone. Imagine, for example, the final doozy of a last line from Psalm 137, discussed in a previous episode, set to head-banging heavy metal rock guitars. Here's that line. A blessing on the one who seizes your children and smashes them against the rock. A certain tone is conveyed. Now, imagine that line set to something quite different. Strings in a haunting and halting setting. Listen again. A blessing on the one who seizes your children and smashes them against the rock. That sets a very different tone. The rock guitar presumably exacerbates the violent sentiment ratcheting it up to a fevered pitch. The strings attenuate it, thereby creating an entirely opposite effect. Of course, how the lyric is uttered makes a difference, too. More on that momentarily. Over the years, the psalms have frequently been set to music, and the best guess of scholars, based on clues from the psalms themselves, is that they were also set to music way back when. Sadly, all of that is lost to us now, and so modern musical settings are just that, modern. They are, as a result, highly interpretive, but that is hardly an insult. Any poetry reading, even if it is the one taking place within one's own cranium while reading some Mary Oliver, every poetry reading is a performance of sorts and thus an interpretation. There can be no doubt about that. What remains in doubt, however, is whether any given performance or interpretation is a good one. And at least part of any interpretation, and thus part of any performance, is determining the tone of a piece. Tone impacts performance. Is this a heavy metal moment, or one for mournful strings? Unfortunately, there's no magic recipe that delivers a perfect determination of tone every time with every poem. Determining poetic tone, it turns out, is equally also an interpretive enterprise. One must sleuth it out, argue for it. David Marno describes tone as an intangible quality of the text that 
doesn't reveal itself simply or only through specific textual features, but is instead a holistic quality, something that belongs to the text in and of itself as such. Tone has to do with emotional state, the general mood or atmosphere of a piece, the speaker's attitude, all of the above, and then some. Matters of tone and emotional state Performance and interpretation are on display in the poem for this episode, Psalm 88, which I am calling A Dark Poem from Within the Depths. Here it is, according to the Common English Bible. Lord, God of my salvation, by day I cry out, even at night before you, let my prayer reach you. Turn your ear to my outcry, because my whole being is filled with distress, my life is at the very brink of hell. I am considered as one of those plummeting into the pit. I am like those who are beyond help, drifting among the dead, lying in the grave like dead bodies. Those you don't remember anymore who are cut off from your power. You placed me down in the deepest pit. In places dark and deep, your anger smothers me. You subdue me with it, wave after wave. You've made my friends distant. You've made me disgusting to them. I can't escape. I'm trapped. My eyes are tired of looking at my suffering. I've been calling out to you every day, Lord. I've had my arms outstretched to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do ghosts rise up and give you thanks? Is your faithful love proclaimed in the grave, your faithfulness in the underworld? Are your wonders known in the land of darkness, your righteousness in the land of oblivion? But I cry out to you, Lord. My prayer meets you first thing in the morning. Why do you reject my very being, Lord? Why do you hide your face from me? Since I was young, I've been afflicted. I've been dying. I've endured your terrors. I'm lifeless. Your fiery anger has overwhelmed me. Your terrors have destroyed me. They surround me all day long like water. They engulf me completely. You've made my loved ones and companions distant. My only friend is darkness. And with that, the poem ends. And so, in the case of Psalm 88, the tone doesn't seem too hard to discern, does it? Psalm 130 famously has the psalmist crying out to God from the depths, but the poet of Psalm 88 is worse off still. This poem comes from within the depths. There is no movement out of these depths. This poet is distraught and depressed, stuck, caught. But maybe that is getting ahead of ourselves. Tone must be argued for, after all. And arguments about tone need to proceed from the words of the poem itself. When we attend to the words of the psalm, we see plenty of evidence that the description of this poem as a, as a dark one from within the depths, it seems to fit. The psalmist mentions distress almost immediately and claims to be on the very brink of death, not to mention the shadowy 
afterlife, Hebrew Sheol, which the Common English Bible translates here as hell, with a lowercase h. And this poet is just getting warmed up. From the brink of Sheol, the psalmist moves into the pit, another term often used for the realm of the dead, a point confirmed in the very next verse, which explicitly mentions dead bodies lying slain in graves. And as if that wasn't disturbing enough, the poet connects some dots. Such people, such dead people, mind you, are forgotten by God, which means the psalmist, too, is forgotten, in addition to being a walking dead man. Still worse, all this is God's doing, since it is God who placed the psalmist in the very bottom of this pit, in places dark and deep. Well, yeah, thanks a lot for that, God. How's my tone now? This moving complaint continues for several verses, but then comes a twist, or at least a feint. About halfway through, in verse 13, the psalmist says she cries out to God and that her prayer meets God first thing in the morning. In other lament psalms, some of which are similar to this one, such a sentiment, a verse like this one, marks a turning point in the poetic structure where the psalmist turns to confidence, even praise. But not in this poem. This verse is a twist, all right, but mostly a twist of the knife in God's sight because the poet continues to complain about, name, and blame God's abandonment and rejection. But ultimately, the knife is twisting in the poet's own heart. This poet is desperate, shunned, and alone. Truly alone. In the Common English Bible's rendition, the psalm ends simply, plaintively, with, My only friend is darkness. Yes, this is a dark poem from within the depths. One can hardly imagine a deeper, darker place than the pit of the grave, the hell of Sheol. But somewhat ironically, the specific language used here, the imagery and the metaphors in this psalm noir, all combine to cast great light on the tone of what is a truly dark poem. But why, we might ask, is Psalm 88 so dark? Perhaps light of a different sort might be cast on that question by considering a modern poem by Linda Paston, entitled, Why Are Your Poems So Dark? Here it is. Isn't the moon dark too, most of the time? And doesn't the white page seem unfinished without the dark stain of alphabets? When God demanded light, he didn't banish darkness. Instead, he invented ebony and crows and that small mole on your left cheekbone. Or did you mean to ask, why are you sad so often? Ask the moon. Ask what it has witnessed. Ask the moon, Paston says, the moon that is dark most of the time. And why is that? Why is the moon dark most of the time? 
because of what the moon has witnessed, the poem suggests, over its countless years surveying the earth. Think of all that. Some of it, some of it is imaginable and horrible. War, famine, poverty, death. Much more of all that is unimaginable, even worse horrors. Seeing all that, seeing that much, means that the moon must stay dark most of the time. And, in the play of the poetry, seeing what Paston has seen means that her poems, too, must be so dark and that she must be sad so often. The tone of Paston's poem, too, doesn't seem difficult to discern, but it is its haunting last line that for me affords unique insight onto Psalm 88. Why does this psalm, unlike the vast majority of the lament psalms, seem unable to move out of the depths, move on to confidence, trust, and praise? Well, ask the moon. Ask what it has witnessed. This psalm, this psalmist has seen and has seen too much. Darkness is now the poet's only companion. This psalmist is alone in the dark, alone with the dark. And yet, as it turns out, Psalm 88 isn't the end. Neither is it by itself all alone in the end. Other psalms come along as companions to help ease Psalm 88, even Psalm 88, out of the depths in the slow course of the grand poetic sequence that is the book of Psalms writ large. All of that, however, is another topic. That is a great big poem for another time. Here again, then, is Psalm 88, this time from the Revised English Bible. Lord, my God, by day I call for help. By night I cry aloud in your presence. Let my prayer come before you. Hear my loud entreaty, for I have had my fill of woes which have brought me to the brink of Sheol. I am numbered with those who go down to the abyss. I have become like a man beyond help, abandoned among the dead, like the slain lying in the grave, whom you hold in mind no more, who are cut off from your care. You have plunged me into the lowest abyss, into the darkest regions of the depths. Your wrath bears heavily on me. You have brought on me all your fury. You have removed my friends far from me and made me utterly loathsome to them. I am shut in with no escape. My eyes are dim with anguish. Lord, every day I have called to you and stretched out my hands in prayer. Will it be for the dead you work wonders? Or can the shades rise up and praise you? Will they speak in the grave of your love, of your faithfulness in the tomb? Will your wonders be known in the region of darkness, your victories in the land of oblivion? But as for me, Lord, 
I cry to you. My prayer comes before you in the morning. Lord, why have you cast me off? Why do you hide your face from me? From childhood, I have suffered and been near to death. I have borne your terrors. I am numb. Your burning fury has swept over me. Your onslaughts have overwhelmed me. All the day long, they surge round me like a flood. From every side, they close in on me. You have taken friend and neighbor far from me. Darkness is now my only companion. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Thanks to Linda Paston for permission to use her poem, which was first published in Poetry Magazine in 2003, and which is also found in her collection, A Queen of Rainy Country, published by W.W. W. Norton.